Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be talking with Ilana Gershlowitz, director of the STAR Academy, which specializes in providing educational programs for children with autism. Claire McHugh is a mother of two, a nutritionist and Pampers Institute expert, and she'll be joining us to share some tips about healthy eating, nutrition during pregnancy, and how to make sure that your baby and your children eat well and healthily. And then joining me in studio will be Dr. Gareth Lowndes, Prevention Programs Director at CareWorks, and Dr. Don Papuma, a GP in Soweto, and they'll be talking with me about male medical circumcision and the role it plays in reducing HIV infection. And then I'll be joined on the line by Catherine Neal, Group Marketing Manager for Exum International. Now, they produce a range of naturally grown, naturally cleaned, preservative-free herbs, spices, pestos, and seasonings for those of us who value healthy living. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters on SAFM. Ilana Gershlowitz is the director of the STAR Academy, which provides ABA, which is Applied Behaviour Analysis Services, to children with autism. She's also the mother of a son with autism, and she joins me now. Ilana, good evening. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Good evening. Thank you for having me. So let's just talk first of all. I mentioned that you are a mother of a son with autism, and this is where the STAR Academy came out of your journey, and it was quite a journey. Just, do you want to just tell us briefly where you went and what happened and how you got to this point? Yes, absolutely. Um, when David was 20 months old, he received a diagnosis of severe autism. At the time, I searched everywhere to find the right services, services for him. We really did struggle to find the right medical and educational intervention for his needs, and we started looking overseas for help. Instead of immigrating, we decided to stay in South Africa and import the expertise to South Africa, and that's how the Star Academy came about. Now, how prevalent is autism in this country? Do you know? You know, there aren't accurate statistics for South Africa, but in America, um, the, the, the recent stats is at least one in 110 child born is receiving an autism diagnosis. Um, there was a statistic recently by the CDC that said one in 88. Um, so it's, there's a very high incidence in America. I can tell you that there's a high incidence in South Africa um, because of the number of calls and emails the Star Academy the Star Academy receives on a daily basis. We can have at least 10 parents a day calling to say that they've received this diagnosis, which is really a lot of children. The thing about autism, I think people need to understand, it's not just one thing. It's an umbrella. It's a spectrum. It's called the autism spectrum. There's a number of different variations on a theme, if you like. Absolutely correct. Um, so autism is a spectrum disorder. You can have some children who are more functioning, some children are more challenged than others. Um, generally, the children have challenges or delays in the areas of language and communication. They also um, exhibit uh, delays in the areas of social relatedness, um, or they don't read social cues. So they have criteria under this umbrella that are deficient. And the other uh, area that we look at is repetitive behaviors. And often these children have stereotypical behaviors or repetitive behaviors. Now, up until, I, I mean, all I've ever really known about autism is that children with autism never really get to the point where they can be mainstream schooled and, and actually re- 
recover in inverted commas if you like but what you work on at the star academy is getting children a lot further than they've ever gotten before yes so um in south africa for many many years um the opinion was that autism is a lifelong disability and many people used to say that children with autism are retarded this is in fact incorrect um, ABA stands for Applied Behaviour Analysis and is the one statistically proven intervention for children on the autism spectrum that has proven to be successful. There's a lot of research on ABA coming from the States. Um, so absolutely, autism spectrum disorder um, is a treatable condition. I think this is the important word that I want everyone to remember this evening. With an um, appropriate medical and educational intervention, children can lead functional lives. And yes, there are some children who may possibly recover. There certainly is not one cure for autism, but there are some children who have recovered. And if your listeners uh, would like to learn more about this, if you go to the CARD website or the Star Academy website, um, you can click on Recovered and you will see testimonies from parents and what treatments they implemented to um, get a recovery at the end of the day. But I do want to stress that not every child will recover. And when you talk about recovering, it's not just the parents saying, well, my child is recovered. This is a medical, they've been checked out by psychologists, by medical professionals to the point where they will actually say then, those professionals will tell you that. So, so absolutely, that's a very good uh, statement that you've made. Um, when CARD, and so just to um, mention that the Star Academy is an affiliate of the American-based Center for Autism and Related Disorders. They are world leaders in autism treatment. Um, when they say that a child has recovered, they actually qualify. They have a, a page document um, where they actually have listed specific criteria as to what recovery actually means. And just very briefly, it means that an educational psychologist or medical professional who has been authorized to make a diagnosis has re-diagnosed the child and the child has lost their autism diagnosis. It means that on an IQ test, they score um, average to above average scores and that they are able to attend mainstream school without facilitation. So it is something that is actually, as a medically proven. It's not something the parents just decided absolutely. was absolutely. And I, I can, you know, I can absolutely see how that you, how you would raise that concern, and that is a concern because, you know, um, we, we need to be looking at objective um, research, proper validated results. It, it can't absolutely. just be a parent's opinion. Mm. But yes, the research is there, and there have been children who have recovered. One of the interesting things, Alana, is the link between food and nutrition and autism, because there's sometimes quite a battle with children with autism and the whole food issue. Absolutely correct. There is such a battle. So um, sometimes when I meet parents, they say, oh, I heard about that diet for autism, and I, I don't think my child's going to be one of those children who... Um, need to go onto a special diet. Uh, and I always say to the parent, you, you don't just put a child onto a diet. Um, you start off by actually doing medical tests to ascertain what foods the children are actually sensitive to. Often we find that children are predominant on the autism spectrum are predominantly sensitive to gluten, um, wheat, dairy, casein, soya, 
Um, sugar obviously also plays a role. Um, and, and, and so this can really be established by scientific tests. Um, once you do have those test results, it is difficult to take a child and put them onto a special diet, but um, it is very important in the treatment of autism um, to be getting their nutrition right. And besides just that, I mean, there's also the issue with sometimes children with autism don't like the texture of certain foods or they want only one particular type of food on a particular type of plate. And so the whole mealtime is, is an issue as well. I, can't, I don't have the words to actually explain to you on behalf of the parents how absolutely correct this is and how difficult this can be. Can you only imagine now, we're talking about a special diet. Now we're talking about a child who's got... Um, food sensitivities, so um, they, they, sensitivities to textures. They don't like to eat certain foods. It becomes such a battle. It is such a difficult thing. And in fact, CARD um, have t- have designed programs where they actually implement feeding programs as part of the children's lesson programs um, during their ABA time because um, you need to slowly, very slowly, and um, with the help of experts, introduce those children to these textures, textures that they find aversive. Yes, so it is a very difficult situation, but it is doable, absolutely possible, and with patience and time, it you get there. Now, we're talking a lot about the children and what you're doing for the children, but I'm sure the parents must need an awful lot of support through this as well, Ilana. They do. Um, It's extremely difficult. You know, to have a child with autism means so many things. Um, To give your listeners an idea, it can mean that the child struggles to speak verbally. It can mean that even if they do have the ability to communicate verbally, um, they don't know how to make friends and they're different um, to their peers. Um, it can mean that they don't sleep at night because they're actually medica- medically ill. Um, it can mean that the parents can't just go out in the community to, the, to pick and pay or to Woolworths or, or to synagogue or to church um, or to a restaurant and sit peacefully with their child you know, um, sometimes the children don't like new environments, and as part of their program, actually, at Star Academy, if they are having difficulties going out to these places in the community, we actually um, teach them how, how to slowly learn to, to tolerate different places. But it, it really is child-specific. I don't want everyone to think that every child on the autism spectrum can't go to the shops. It really does just depend on that specific child's challenges. But it can mean these things. It can also mean that it's very difficult for the parent when they're having um, a family get-together where they're children of the same age and the, the, the difference between the atypical peer, peer and the, the child with autism, you can see the difference. And it's so difficult for, that child with, um, for the parent who has a child with autism to, to see how normal the other children appear to be. Um, so it's very, very difficult, and the parents need a lot of support. And if there are people out there listening this evening, if you are a family member of a parent who has a child with autism, um, please be as sensitive as possible um, because they need to be carried through this very, very traumatic experience.
Now, Elada, there's currently a show on, on DSTV called Parenthood, and one of the characters in that show, I don't know whether you've seen it, is a young boy with autism. Have you seen the show? I actually haven't. I look forward to seeing oh, it. Oh, it's just this new latest season has just ended, and I just wondered if that was a true representation of what a child with autism was like, because this child exhibits pretty much what you were saying now, um, but not all of them. You know, he goes to a mainstream school, for example, but, you know, has terrible behavioral problems, and the parents, it's how the parents cope and how the family copes with him. And I wondered if that was a true representation. But uh, keep a lookout for the new season of Parenthood. You'll see there's a little boy, a young boy. Um, he's just, just gone off to high school, I think, in the series um, with autism. So quite quite a, um, an interesting series to watch. I will definitely do that. Sounds very interesting. So basically what we're saying is at the Star Academy, you are helping the children. But also, um, is there support for the parents as well? Are there programs in place for them too? Um, you know, the parents do get together for a coffee and share their mm. stories and have a laugh. Um, I've had many situations in the grocery store um, or in a long queue somewhere where my son has had a tantrum and everyone looks at you as if there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we do have parents support. The parents get together for coffee and support each other. Um, a lot of the parents do um, seek help in, in um, seeing a psychologist, which I absolutely advise um, on an individual basis. Um, so, yes, group therapy is important as well. And, it's, and you also learn from um, other parents who are going through a similar situation as you. So it's very important to uh, be in a support group. Um, but it's also important to get individual counselling from a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. Now, you are based in Johannesburg. If people have queries and they're not in Johannesburg, could they phone you? Could, who would they contact? Can they still reach you? Yes. Yeah, so the Star Academy is based in Johannesburg. We have two centres in Johannesburg. We have a centre in Durban and in Pretoria. And we are currently also servicing some children in Ghana and Zimbabwe, and we're getting actually quite a lot of requests from Africa. Um, Really, autism is a a big challenge worldwide. Um, If parents want more information or they don't live in the areas that I've mentioned, they are welcome to contact us. Our details are on our website. Um, And I set up a time to speak to the parents, point them in the right direction. There are good doctors in South Africa who have been trained to um, take parents through the medical treatment protocol for children with autism. Um, And just to remind everybody that autism is a medically treatable condition. Children suffer from inflammation, um, immune dysregulation, um, nutrient deficiencies, impaired detoxification mechanisms. A lot needs to be done to help these children. Well, Ilana, thank you for all the information. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there thinking, gosh, well, there's, at least there's some hope. I can speak to somebody. I think that a lot of the time is the big problem is you just think you're out there all by yourself. And knowing that there's somebody who you can talk to or some information you can get, I think goes a long way to helping a lot of people. So thank you so much for your time this evening. Pleasure. Thank you so much. And you correct. When David was originally diagnosed, We kept the secret. You think you're the only one. And when you start speaking to other parents, you realize how many people are in the same situation as you. Many different parents from, you know, um, different areas, different uh, nationalities. Um, It it really affects everybody. And so don't keep it to yourself. Seek help. There's help out there. And there's definitely a message of hope. There's hope. As long as you have hope, things can only get better. What a wonderful way to end that chat. Ilana, thank you so much for your time. 
pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a good evening. You too. Good night to you. Ilona Gershlowitz is the director of the Star Academy. And for more information, you can take a look at their website. It's www.thestaracademy.co.za. Health Matters on SAFM. Well, making sure that your baby and your children eat well and healthily is a concern for all of us parents. Well, to share some tips about healthy eating, nutrition during pregnancy, as well as giving us some snack and lunchbox ideas, which I think at the beginning of the year we all desperately need, I'm joined now by Claire McHugh. She's a mother of two, as well as being a nutritionist and the Pampers Institute expert. Claire, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me. I think when you talk about children and food, a lot of parents, the sort of the hair stands up on the back of their neck and they think, oh gosh, mealtimes, you know, becomes an absolute mm-hmm. nightmare. How do we go about making sure these little darlings of ours get exactly what they should be having? Yeah. Feeding our children is one of the things that us as mums take quite seriously and it's one of our main responsibilities. Keep them warm, keep them fed and you'll keep them alive. Mm. But they often don't play ball, so it can <laughs> become a very stressful part of parenting. Right, so we start off, I think, briefly, nutrition during pregnancy. What should we and shouldn't we be doing? It's been shown that um, the, the mother's nutrition up to 90 days or three months before she falls pregnant can actually have an impact on the nutritional status of her unborn child. So I think if a woman is planning to fall pregnant, she should start thinking about her nutrition early on and start taking something like a prenatal vitamin or folic acid before she conceives, if if possible. And then obviously during pregnancy, she should aim to be following a healthy, balanced diet with regular meals and a good variety of foods. And it's important actually that mums who are pregnant avoid overeating. We all know the myth of eating for two. (laughs) But um, it's been shown too that all we need is about an extra 300 calories in the second and third trimester um, per day. And that equates to something simple like a sandwich. So we don't need to eat a lot more during pregnancy, but the most important thing is to consider and think of quality rather than quantity. And then some of the things that are obviously very important because our babies are growing and we're increasing our blood volume is that um, protein and iron should be um, considered and important to make sure you get enough of. And foods that are rich in protein are obviously things like meat and fish and dairy and pulses. And um, the iron-rich foods would be your most easily um, um, absorbed forms of iron in your red meats and chicken. Is there anything we should be avoiding eating during pregnancy? Yeah, again, there's lots and lots of myths about what we should be avoiding. Um, The most important thing is that mums who are are pregnant are kept healthy. And um, a lot of the things that we are encouraged to avoid, things like very ripe cheeses and um, um, things like sushi or raw fish, are really to avoid getting foodborne illnesses. So those things should obviously be avoided. And then because of the risk of mercury toxicity, um, fish that are um, generally going to be high in mercury, like um, um, marlin and shark and that kind of thing, should be um, avoided as well. And then most basic and most simple, obviously, you shouldn't be taking a lot of caffeine and alcohol during pregnancy. Or we shouldn't be having any alcohol. Absolutely. I was about to say one of the most important things to avoid is alcohol at all yes. costs. Do not yes. consume. And there also, is obviously, evidence that um, alcohol in pregnancy can lead to um, fetal alcohol syndrome, which um, would cause severe 
neurological delay and problems for the unborn child. And possibly one of the things we should plan on, on giving up three months or so before we even planning on falling pregnant. So it's one of those yeah. things as well? Absolutely. All and right. then it's not really nutrition related, but smoking is also well, yes. going to be harmful to your unborn child. Absolutely. Right, so now we've got through the pregnancy, we've had the baby. Um, we Let's just chat a little bit now. They've, <clears throat> we're going to bypass the child, the baby babyhood. Now they're at school. And I think most importantly, because they're at school, schools have just opened last week, we need yep. to get them packed a healthy lunch. And, you know, it's easy just yep. to throw the packet of chips and the fizzy Coke thing in the school bag and say, well, off you go, dear. But what should we be putting in their lunch boxes? I think it's important to think of a school lunch as a as a nutritious meal for your children, not just something to see them through the morning. Um, and therefore, and that way, you should actually look at that lunchbox and check that you're getting something from all the food groups. Obviously, um, we know that half a child's plate should literally be fruit and vegetables. So think of half of that um, lunchbox having things like fruit and vegetables in them. And it doesn't need to be fresh fruits and vegetables. It can be salad on a sandwich. It could be dried fruit. It could be fresh fruit. Um, um, it could be things like unsweetened fruit sticks. But make sure that those kind of foods are always there. And if your child's not that keen on them, you can turn them into, put them on, put pieces of fruit on skewers. You can cut vegetables into little pieces with a dip so that it does make it a little bit more exciting. Then obviously we know that the starchy foods are our children's main source of energy, so those need to go in. And it doesn't have to be the boring bread sandwich every single day. You can use things like wraps. You can use little mini pitas, crackers, rice cakes, things like that to make it, again, a little bit more exciting and varied. And then because we know that they're growing and they need the protein, try and ensure that there's something protein-rich in their lunch boxes too. So you could add cheese to a sandwich or some form of meat like chicken mayonnaise or some form of fish, um, nuts if, if the child is old enough and able to take them, some things that could go in addition, things like biltong or dried horse, all to get an extra bit of protein in. And another nice protein idea, which I'm thinking of a little bit earlier when I was thinking of this interview, is um, freezing mini tubs of low-fat yogurt. If you pop a frozen low-fat yogurt into your children's lunchbox by mid-morning when they're due to have their break, that yogurt's defrosted but still nice and chilled. And it goes down the street. Gosh, and this is something we should maybe plan the night before because if you're trying to do this in the morning, when you're trying to rush yourself and the kids out of the door and you're trying to make breakfast yeah, and absolutely. you're trying to shove things in a lunchbox, maybe you should do this before you go to bed the night before. And then it it's not going to be a major panic in the morning. Absolutely. I think being organized with school lunches makes um, success that much easier. The other thing I haven't mentioned um, in terms of school lunches is what to drink. I think so many children are being sent to school with very sugary drinks. And we know, and I was listening to Alana talking about how sugar can affect children's mm. behavior earlier. Um, if they've been given very sugary drinks, and I've seen children go to school with sports drinks, which are extremely high in sugar, um, it is potentially going to affect their concentration and behavior. So as far as possible, I do encourage water as a drink for school. And if your children are very averse to all water, it should be a very diluted juice. So there are options, you know, but unfortunately, a lot of times parents go for the quick fix, you know, the quick option, we'll mm -hmm. just throw a can or a bottle of something in the bag. And, you know, that's, yeah, that's the yeah. thing. And I do understand. I mean, mornings are a nightmare. That's why I said try and sort this out the night before and yeah. just pack it in a box and stick it in the fridge. So in the morning, all you need to do is take it out the fridge. Absolutely. And, 
And I'm assuming, Claire, that all, most of those things you mentioned about in the lunchbox are really good snack time meals as well for kids if they're looking for something to snack on. I would Absolutely. imagine most of those things are great for snacks too. Yeah, another nice thing that is a great lunchbox for little snack is a, a mini mini muffin of sorts, mm. preferably a high-fiber muffin and a good way to sneak in vegetables into a diet too because you could grate courgette or carrot or pop raisins into them. And the little mini muffins are great extra. Another something that could go in is, um, as I said, something like a veggie with a cheesy dip or a little bit of hummus. And that makes um, dipping and eating, you know, a lot more interesting than if it were just on its own. And if you worry about your kids eating all that sort of thing, it, it does help if it's something that is regularly eaten at home. So they get used to yes. eating it. Don't put something foreign in the lunchbox because when they get to school, they'll open the box and think, I'm not eating that. You know, and then come home with it yes. or give it away or something. So make sure it's things that they are used to eating in the house. Absolutely. And you need to start by introducing those foods in the second six months of life when when they are weaning. Um, if those foods are being offered to them regularly from the very beginning, they're much more likely to continue eating them and enjoying them than if they're suddenly introduced to them when they're six or seven. Yeah, don't, don't, it mustn't be a shock. It must be, as you say, something that they've got used to through their life, effectively. Yeah. Yeah, because kids... And you're talking... Sorry. Sorry, carry on. No, you're talking about being organized. I guess um, what came to mind was an article I read earlier today about the prevalence of childhood obesity being associated with children who spend a lot of money at tuck shops. Mm. And... Again, if you're disorganized and just sending your children to school with 20 rand, for instance, you can't be guaranteed that they're going to be able to choose something healthy or even buy something that is a healthy option at school. Although the really nice positive thing about that is a lot of schools are now actually stocking their tuck shops with healthy options, with healthy things, the healthy snacks, as opposed to all the sort of, you know, the sugary snack things. So that is, we are starting to move in the right direction there, I think. There are a lot of um, programs in place where people are trying very hard to change the the um, content of tuck shops to try and make them healthier, which is, as you said, really, really positive. It's, we're hopefully moving in the right direction. Claire, yeah. it's been great chatting with you. We must chat again when we have some more time about all sorts of yeah. other ideas for young children and how to get them to eat interesting things and healthy things. But thank you so very much indeed for your time this evening. Absolutely, Claire. Lovely to be Thanks. able to speak to you too. Thanks, Claire. Good night to you. Okay. Good night. Good night. Claire McHugh is a nutritionist and Pampers Institute expert. And for more information, you can take a look at the website. It's www.pampers.co.za. Every weekend, SAFM brings you the people at the centre of the stories. We give you a clear perspective on national and international events. Find out how on Weekend AM Live from 6 every Saturday and Sunday morning. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Health Matters on SAFM. Well, joining me in studio now, I have Dr. Gareth Lowndes, Prevention Programs Director at CareWorks, and Dr. Don Papuma, a GP in Soweto. And we're going to be talking about male medical circumcision. Gareth and Don, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thanks for the invitation. Good evening, Karen, and uh, good evening to your, to your listeners. Right. I think, Gareth, let's start with you, Pr- Prevention Programs Director at CareWorks. <coughs> Tell me a little bit about CareWorks and what you do there. You work mostly in, with businesses. Uh, that's correct, Karen. Um, CareWorks is a social purpose enterprise. We were formed in 2004 
and we focus on sustainable HIV prevention and disease management. Uh, ostensibly, our history comes from a niche with working with mobile males, particularly in the mining and construction industry. So we find ourselves <coughs> up in Mpumalanga and Limpopo quite a lot. Um, and there we, we run HIV programs. Uh, we're, we're very much data-driven. So we use data to measure, to quantify, and to work out what's working well, what's not working so well, and how, how can we fix it. Because our vision is really to have a sustained impact on HIV reduction. And Don, your role in all of this, where are you? Um, I'm a family physician, uh, practicing in Soweto, and I'm a medical consultant to CareWorks on the Voluntary Medical Male Circumcision Program. It is something, when, when I got the information initially, it, I was told, it was said to me, this is something that's going to make your listeners cringe. And you, you can almost imagine you listen, the, the guys out there listening to this thinking, no, 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 not for me, no. But there is a real health reason, there's a healthy reason why this is being pushed. Even our Minister of Health, Erin Matsuledi, mm. is pushing this at the moment. Why? We're all extremely excited about it, and largely because it, it forms a... Uh, a bedrock and a foundation to our combined um, uh, strategy towards combating HIV and AIDS. And it's a bedrock in the sense that it's a sustainable solution, it's a once-off solution, and it's pretty cost-effective um, and can be rolled out nationally. The thing I think that most people don't realize is that it, it will reduce the potential risk of HIV infection by, I think it's up to 60%. 100% up to, up to 60%. Mm. And that's a significant number. Uh, and uh, the, the impact of that, I'm sure Gareth would like to expand on. But uh, yeah, an, an incredible impact as a result of that. Well, I mean, just, just to give the listeners some idea, um, HIV has not gone away. I think the public, uh, particularly in my area of, uh, of work, um, sometimes becomes jaded with these large statistics. But just to put it into perspective, you've got 70% of the world's HIV burden sitting in the nine countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, South Africa itself, that contains 0.7% of the world's population, is carrying 16% of the HIV burden currently. Now... SANAC, the National Department of Health, generally agree on a figure of 6.1 million HIV-positive people. Uh, it fluctuates slightly depending on who you're speaking to. But, but what, is, what does that 6.1 million look like? Uh, I mean, recently we have the Confederation of African Football sitting, sit, sit, sitting and, and playing in South Africa. Uh, and congratulations to Libya and, and Ghana tonight. Mm -hmm. um, if you were to fill Ellis Park Stadium to capacity on, on the World Cup soccer stage, or in fact Greenpoint Stadium. Each of those stadiums contains 64,000 people. You would need 95 of those stadiums, 95, to visualize the HIV impact. Wow, okay. It's startling. It is rather startling. Now, the other thing, though, Don, about the uh, male medical circumcision, it's not just about the HIV reducing the risk of HIV. There are a number of other health benefits to this. That's true. As well. That's true. Um, primarily a reduction in infections, uh, your HPV, human papillomavirus, uh, uh, other viral infections like HSV, human simplex virus, which results in herpes, 
uh, reduction in penile cancer, uh, because of the reduction in HPV, also a reduction in uh, transmission to females, and therefore reduction in cervical cancer. So quite a number of uh, uh, benefits of uh, medical male circumcision. This is a relatively <coughs> new development. I mean, we didn't hear about male medical circumcision five, six years ago. This, in the last sort of two years or so, we've suddenly hearing a lot about it. Why has it suddenly exploded? There was some groundbreaking research done in, in South Africa around 2005. And then that study was corroborated with further randomized controlled trials in Kenya and Uganda in 2007. And in fact, some of those, sub, some of those randomized controlled trials was, were, were, were finished earlier than expected because there was overwhelming evidence to prove that circumcision had, had a 60% reduction in HIV transmission. So you're talking 2005, 2007, uh, and those studies, of course, then ha have been backed up with, with post-circumcision studies uh, um, to prove that it, it has a sustained effect. It's not a, it doesn't wear off. Um, and that, that I think is so exciting about medical male circumcision. It's a one-off event. It's a one-off intervention. Um, unlike ARVs, you can't forget to take your pills in the morning. Unlike condoms, you, you don't uh, forget to put one on. You don't have one with you, for example. Mm -hmm. Or, 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 or you, you just decide not to use condoms. It, it's, it's an intervention that happens. It's cost-effective. It's relatively short to, to do it. It's about 20 minutes. And um, CareWorks is, is supporting MMC through demand creation. Now, this is you, something interesting you mentioned there. It's one of the things I think people need to understand. If the, the medical circumcision has taken place, doesn't mean you don't have to still then use a condom. It's not, it's not, it doesn't stop anything. You've got to still use the it, condom. It doesn't stop anything. And I think two things to note. Number one, 60% reduction, meaning 40%. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that is crucial to appreciate. And secondly, important to continue condomizing and to continue with all the other aspects that we've been punting so over safe there. Sex is still safe number sex one. is still that number is one. Uh, uh, you know, okay. appropriate, uh, uh, ideally single partner, etc. Everything still applies. The interesting thing, I don't know whether I've got this quite correct. Am I correct in thinking that with the 60% reduction, it's in the infection from female to male? It's not the male to female that you're reducing. Am I correct? Have I got that the right way around? Okay. Female to male. So, so the man is actually protecting himself from getting infected from an infected female, but he could still, if he was infected, still that's not got anything to do with this. Precisely. It's him not being infected by an infected female. That's what this is all about. That is exactly what this is all about. Okay, right. So now and I'm the crucial thing there too is that uh, the male is the vector. Mm. And the male is the problem child in the equation to a large extent because he's largely mobile, he's largely moneyed, uh, we live in a patriarchal society, etc, etc. So um, if we can capture him and reduce him being infected, then uh, invariably, uh, the, the, the epidemic is contained, or rather, drastically reduced. Gareth, what has the re response been? Are you working in the, you, with people in the workplace? Has there been a, an uptake of this program, or are people still a bit skeptical about all of this? Yeah, the the workplace represents a very interesting area for care works. We we are receiving a grant from PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And that funding allows us to, to walk into the workplaces where we have an established trusted relationship and expand our HIV programs to include medical male circumcision demand creation. CareWorks itself is not, um, not actually a clinical partner. We are a demand creation partner. And then we feed our leads into, into clinical partners that we work with. 
I think it's important, though, to state that medical male circumcision is just one part of a, a combination prevention strategy. Um, as Dr. Don has mentioned, MMC offers a 60% reduction in female-to-male transmission. But we can't ignore as well that there are other strategies that impact a HIV reduction, uh, not least prevention of mother-to-child transmission, uh, the distribution, the wide distribution of condoms helps, and of course treatment as prevention, including the, the, the uh, national rollout of the antiretroviral program. All of these have a benefit, and together, as a strategic um, program, which we call combination prevention, because it combines numerous ways, we hope to have, um, well, eventually, we're, our, our vision is to have an AIDS regeneration, of course. God, wouldn't that be just the best thing ever? <laughs> Dr. Don, right, in your practice, people that I'm assuming you talk to about this, um, there are, I know, a lot of myths surrounding medical male circumcision, and people are thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to enjoy sex like I did, and there's loss of sensation. <laughs> and what are some of the myths, and do you people, do you, how do you deal with this? Uh, there are a number of myths. Uh, number one uh, is that if you have uh, medical male circumcision in a medical environment, uh, you're not a, a real man. Uh, you're supposed to have a traditional circumcision. Mm. Um, and uh, that is largely, uh, th there are other myths that, that come into play. And for us, it's a case of continuing to educate people about the benefits of medical male circumcision, about its safety and uh, about its efficacy. Now the thing is, when you do suggest this to a, pa a patient, I mean, the, the point is that they will go into hospital, they'll be well cared for, it's very safe, and those are all things that people need to understand, that it is, it's a safe procedure. It's being done hundreds of times a day, I'm assuming, hoping, hoping actually, um, and it, it is a very safe procedure. It's not gained, there's no long-lasting bad effects from having something like that done. Definitely, safe procedure, quick, cost-effective, as I said, uh, sustainable and uh, with uh, virtually no adverse effects if it's done by a trained individual that knows how to do a circumcision in the right environment, which is what we are punting. And how do you see it in your practice? Are you seeing people taking this up and, and, and sort of warming up to the idea? We've always had circumcisions coming in, uh, uh, but largely not from the medical male circumcision campaign, but as part of uh, uh, cultural uh, initiative and just parents wanting their children to be circumcised or young people wanting to be circumcised. And uh, that has resulted in a significant number of South Africans actually being circumcised. Uh, the number being bandied about is approximately 55% of uh, South African males are circumcised anyway. Well, that's pretty good. Uh, which is mm. quite impressive. <laughs> and uh, so this, the, the medical male circumcision is uh, largely aimed at HIV prevention as a strategy, uh, as one of the strategies uh, towards uh, HIV prevention. So that's an extra feather in the cap um, um, towards the fight. Gosh, well, as I said, it's, it's being one of those things being fought on all fronts here, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll get mm. the message across. Mm. And you're you seeing this as it's a really positive step. I mean, it's heading in the right direction here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think our understanding now of the South African context of the HIV AIDS epidemic I think the collective body of knowledge um, on prevention and treatment, we've got political will, we've got budget commitment, and I think this provides a unique opportunity for South Africa to, to really influence the trajectory of where this disease is going. Uh, and that's going to have, obviously, economic benefits, local benefits, and global benefits. Uh, so we're very excited. Yeah, I was just reading some information as well. That I mean, the, the health minister spoke at some event on World AIDS Day. As you said, there's there's a lot of government sort of, you know, buy into this project, which I think goes a long way to helping it succeed as well. 
Yeah, the, the National Health Minister together with the Deputy President have implored South Africans to, I think the tagline this year is get wise, get tested and get circumcised. And over the last three years, one million men have, have heeded that advice. And um, one million men, how, how, how close is that to our target? Well, our target is 4.3 million men circumcised over a five year period. So we have some way to go. Uh, one million men is, is great. It's a start. And so, therefore, you know, we're looking at more cost-effective, quicker, uh, easier methods um, to circumcise over and above the surgical, um, surgical route. Would you think there would come a time when it would become almost the norm for babies to be circumcised almost immediately after birth? We will look forward to that day. <laughs> <laughs> we'll look forward to that day because that would save us in the long run. Because uh, the target population is uh, distinctly older than the babies. Mm. We're looking mm. at basically uh, people from, uh, who are sexually active. Sure. As our target population. Well, now, yes, but Precisely. I mean, you know, you yes. start the yes. process yes. in the future, yes. that when we yes. get to this point when they're that age, it's there already no done. Need. Yeah. There's no need yeah. then. Yeah. I mean, that would be ideal. That is the ideal scenario. Ideal, scenario. absolutely. Scenario. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, you, sorry, you wanted to say something, Gareth? Um, well, just, just to add, um, if the listeners are interested in being referred or scheduled into um, a, a camp near them, CareWorks operates on a national basis. We, are, we work together with PETFAR partners and the National Department of Health. Uh, may I offer a number? Please, absolutely. Okay. Um, if listeners have got a pen and paper there, uh, it's a please call me. So it's an SMS number, a free SMS number. It's a please call me to 076-936-6612. I'll repeat the number. It's 076-936-6612. And a, a call centre counsellor will redirect that call and schedule that, that person into a, a camp near them. So they can call that number and make arrangements to go for the circumcision just yeah. by sending a free SMS? Absolutely. And we'll Gosh. call them back and we operate across all South African languages. Do you really make it very simple? It's not as if it's a difficult thing to do at all. So it's a, you must feel very sort of um, positive about this because it seems to be moving along at a relatively rapid rate and um, it seems to be working out pretty well. We, we are extremely excited about mm. it. As Gareth said, uh, with the government support, uh, uh, a lot of people within the medical profession are supportive and uh, the PEPFAR drive and the CareWorks drive is uh, beginning to have an impact out there. Do you think how far you've come in a relatively short space of time? It's, it's pretty impressive. But I think people are realising it's time now. We need to do something and get moving because we can't carry on like we have been up no, to now. No. So. Well, it sounds very, very positive, and I'll give out that number again in a moment. But I need to thank Dr. Gareth Lanz and Dr. Don Papuma for joining me in studio this evening. Thank you, gentlemen, very much indeed. Thank you for the invitation. Thank, thank you, Karen, for your time. Dr. Gareth Lanz is the Prevention Programs Director at CareWorks, and Dr. Don Papuma is a GP in Soweto. For more information, as uh, Dr. Lanz said, you can send a free SMS. It's a please call me. Somebody will be in touch with you. The number is 76 0761206936936612. And if you miss that number, you can always email me health at SAFM, healthmatters at safm.co.za, or it will be up on the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. So just take a look and you'll find the number is there. For more information on CareWorks, they also have a website. It's www.careworks.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. 
Natural by Exum International is a family-run business based in Cape Town, and their range provides naturally grown, naturally cleaned, preservative-free herbs, spices, pestos, and seasoning for those of us who value healthy living. Well, to tell us more about this, I'm joined now by Catherine Neal, Group Marketing Manager. Catherine, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Thank you. So tell us about natural. I said you provide all these wonderful things, naturally grown, naturally cleaned. Tell us a little bit about how the company started, where the idea came from. Um, well, as you mentioned, our sister company is Exum, and they were procuring spices throughout, from throughout the world, from Morocco, Egypt, India. And we saw a growing demand for quality table spice that came in grinders and shakers that was um, steam pasteurized, that was free of any colorants, flavorants, preservatives, or MSG. So the business was started 10 years ago, and we've grown quite substantially as a result of the the increasing demand for people to have a better quality product and an increasing awareness into what goes into your food. That was what I wanted to ask you about, the steaming process, because you use steam pasteurization, which apparently is quite unique almost. Not everybody does this. No, not every. Uh, the more traditional way of cleaning spices is actually through irradiation, and um, it's got quite a negative connotation because the environment around a treatment facility does have radioactive waste disposal. Um, and steam pasteurization, the, the spices are actually treated in batches of up to 100 grams at a very low pressure with high temperatures. So it's the process of heating and then cooling spices to um, control the microbes on them, which are obviously natural. And as we mentioned, you mentioned as well, there's no genetically modified organisms, there's no Absolutely preservatives nothing. or colorants or MSG. I mean, it's just there. It's, it's all just... It's the, yeah, it's the raw <laughs> spice in its most raw form that you can have it in a grinder. Now, one of the things about all of this, though, Catherine, is it make, I, have, I love having these on my shows. I have them across the board on all the shows I do, proudly South African moments. And you've supplied me with another one because you guys export to countries that are usually, I mean, almost impossible to crack from South Africa with something like this, and yet you've managed to get into the most unbelievable markets overseas. Yes. I mean, I think our, our big feather in our cap is always that we're huge in the Australian market, and I think South Africans and Australians, it's always a nice thing yes. to be very big there. <laughs> um, and we've also pioneered markets as diverse as Japan and Russia. We're very, very big in reunion in the United States, and it's all in countries where there's a growing awareness into what goes into your product. I think, you know, earlier you were talking about things like child obesity, um, what salt content is added into products, etc. And the thing is, it's not only eating healthily, it's what flavorants are then going onto the food you're choosing. So we've been able to be very, very competitive on an international level. And that's obviously as a result of clever buying and also a very cheap labor force. Yeah, really nice. I mean, America especially is almost impossible because, you know, they think they can make everything there themselves and they don't really need things yeah. like what you're producing from anywhere else. And the markets that you've cracked, though, those are normally markets that will are very picky about what they will import. Yes. And so, you know, you're obviously doing something incredibly right to be able to export all of these wonderful things all over the place overseas. Um, well, I think, you know, we've been very lucky in that we've also got the highest accreditation in terms of um, what retailers are wanting, you know, in terms of our factory, the procurement, the quality control. All our spices are fully traceable. So we get from source to table, um, you know, you buy a nutmeg and we can see exactly which farm it's come from, exactly how long we've stored it before it went into a grinder. So I think it's things like that that the international market look at. Um, and I think they are always impressed when a, an African country can provide a, 
a first world product and first world service. And just as an added little benefit, just to tell people if they're interested in the product, that it's also kosher and halal certified as well. Yes, it's kosher and halal certified and vegan. Gosh, well, you just sort of hit every nail on the, pos- on the yes. head you possibly could. <laughs> Catherine, what about labels? Because that's the other thing that people are very interested in these days is what is on the label and how easy is it to understand what's on the label? I think you're right. There's been a huge movement in kind of labeling legislation, and we've got um, two people in our business who focus on that very carefully. Also, because we are exporting so much, um, different countries have different requirements. But um, we have the percentage of every single spice that goes into our, our product on the label. Um, it's, you know, I find with a lot of labels, they kind of the additives of the words that people don't understand. I mean, it really is your pure spices. So it's just uh, the percentage of the spice. Um, but there's an, an fortune of information on the label, and then we're very active in terms of on Facebook, on Pinterest, on Twitter, on our website, where we engage with a consumer. And if they have any queries, uh, we immediately respond and give them more information if they need it. So it's quite simple to read. You know, I love labels where it doesn't tell you 563 things. Normally, if it's got that many things on the label, you shouldn't be buying the thing because that's all the stuff you shouldn't be putting into your body in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, it's very simple Mm. to say the percentage of each variant, if it's a mixed spice, um, and yeah, also that we do support sustainable farming as much as possible, which is very important in terms of striving for a triple bottom line business. Right. So now we're talking about all these herbs and spices now, but that's not just because we want to put them on our food. There are also some very healthy benefits to eating a lot of these herbs and spices. They actually are quite useful in our day to day life. Yes, yes. I mean, it's been very interesting to see, you know, you'd always think salt and pepper would be your top sellers because every household uses them. But we've seen huge growth in the use of spices like cayenne pepper, which um, help to keep your immune system strong. They help with improving cardiovascular functions. They increase your metabolism. Um, And then again, you get something like cinnamon, which is also hugely successful in terms of our sales because it helps the body fight against bacterial and fungal infections. And the benefit I find in cinnamon is that it also increases your metabolism. So if you can't have caffeine and you need to be more alert, you can even smell cinnamon sticks and it has a similar effect. Oh, really? I'm going to go and smell some of those now. Sounds like a a plan. But I mean, even things like coriander, for example, and cumin and bay leaves. You know, there's a reason why they're all these fabulous things that you cook with, because, you know, they have actually got a benefit to your health. Yes. I mean, as you mentioned, cumin's very rich in iron, garlic, we think of as the wonder drug. It Mm. destroys, you know, um, it's said to destroy cancer cells and um, disrupt the metabolism of tumor cells. So they are, I mean, we've got a, a wealth of knowledge on all our, our various social media platforms and our website. And also when you go to shops, there's often brochures about the benefits of the different spices. So is, is the information on each of your products so people can actually see what that product could potentially help them with? They are often serving suggestions, but um, we find that in the, in the shops there should be a, a pamphlet with recipes often detailing how you can also use the spices in different dishes. Um, but in the meantime, people could have a look at the website. Is that natural yes, on herbs our website, and spices? Um, mm. on, I mean, this week we've been doing a lot of education into the benefits of pepper, um, into also Himalayan salt, which has become very popular. It's often referred to also as pink or rose salt. Um, and there it's got a lower sodium content. So people that are worried about adding salt to their meals, it's a nice alternative. And would they find all of that on the website naturalherbsandspices.com? Yes. It's all there. 
You're on fa- you're on Facebook as well. You said. Yes, we're on Facebook. Um, also, natural herbs and spices. We're on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is uh, natural underscore spices. And we've also got a Pinterest page, which is very exciting because you see the different ways that people are using spices. Um, and you know, I always find pictures quite appealing mm. in terms of you know beautiful dishes, how the the color. That they bring to them, and that's Natural Spices Z Day is our Pinterest page. Right, so there's, a, there's no excuse to not find you. Your website, there's a wealth the Facebook, of knowledge out there. <laughs> Twitter, the Pinterest. Gosh, you seem to be absolutely everywhere. What's for, what's in the future for um, for you guys? What's anything interesting coming up? Um, I think we're looking at how to make our spices more versatile in terms of you know sachet, so that if you're going to bry and you just want a nice bry spice, there's a healthy option, and you can pop into kind of a local garage and get one at your convenience um, and also what's grown very big internationally that we're looking at launching this year is flavored salt so you get something like a parsley salt um, uh, you know and various salt variants that um, are quite exciting and going to be launched this year well parsley is so very very good for you too so you know yeah something interesting. Um, i think it's it's looking at it's looking at how to reinvent um you know, the oldest trade and how to make it exciting and how to look at ways of blending spices differently. I mean, you think about spices. I mean, the spice root and all those things. I mean, that was back in, I mean, yeah. so long ago, it's not even funny. But, I mean, so spices have been around for a long time. I just don't know whether we have ever really got to the point of knowing how to use them. I think people back in the day knew what they were doing when it came to spices. I think we lost the art, and hopefully you've reinvented the art yeah, for us. Yeah, and... I think that, you know, programs like MasterChef have mm. been phenomenal in growing awareness into experimenting with food and the flavor that a spice can bring because I think people often worry that the flavor from a spice is going to overpower a meal um, rather than realizing it can often enrich an existing flavor in a meal. Yeah, I've had to buy lots more spices since MasterChef started, I can tell you. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'm not ever going to make it on there, but you know, I just sort of try, try and pretend I could one day possibly be good enough and pour the spices on, and it, it does. It actually makes a huge difference. And even, I mean, people who can't use salt, for example, you know, always say there are other options. You can actually flavor your food with so many herbs and spices and things yes. that you don't always necessarily, if you can't have salt for medical reasons, there's so many other options that you can actually use. They are, and as we said earlier, there's so many options that also have health benefits. Absolutely. It's kind of a double benefit, yeah. Well, Catherine, you've certainly given us uh, some incentive to go out there and do some more fabulous cooking Thank and you. Uh, enjoying ourselves with the herbs and spices. I think it's time we rediscovered what herbs and spices could actually do for us because I think we've kind of forgotten over the years. And, um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful addition. It makes such a difference to a meal. So thank it you does. so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thanks, Catherine. Good night to you. You too. Catherine Neal is the Group Marketing Manager for Natural Herbs and Spices. And to find out more about their healthy alternative, you can take a look, gosh, at quite a number of things. There's the Facebook page, which is Natural Herbs and Spices. There's the website, which is www.naturalherbsandspices.com. And the Twitter handle is natural underscore spices. And apparently there's also something on Pinterest. You'll have to forgive me. I'm not quite sure what the website handle name whatever it is you're supposed to call it on pinterest i'm only just discovered that quite recently so i'm a little bit uh, not quite there yet with that but if you know how to work that look for natural herbs and spices on pinterest and i'm sure you'll find something interesting there
Well, that's the end of Health Matters for this week. Next week, got some extraordinarily interesting items coming up on the show, so do tune in again for that. But for this evening, I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening, just after nine, with time to travel and some interesting things on that as well. So join me for that. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you've missed a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. And just one final reminder before I go, if you're interested in finding out more about male medical circumcision, if you'd like to book for an appointment, please send a free SMS to 076-93-66612. It's a please call me number. So when you SMS that number, somebody will call you back, be in touch with you and make the appointment 076-93-66612. Well, Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.